0: Sometimes in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament to be precise, the message of the gospel, the Christian message, is referred to as a mystery. There's parts in the New Testament where um, the Apostle Paul calls the, the gospel. It's a mystery. Um, very often commentators, uh, Christian commentators, will, will tell us to be careful about what that means, to call the gospel a mystery. It's not a suggestion that the, the gospel is, is a secret message, uh, that is uh, reserved only for the privileged few and is hard to understand and you need um, an insight that only a few people have um, to understand it and you know we we hide our meetings or we, we don't we don't we don't try and uh, ask questions uh, because it's such a mystery that's not what the word mystery means it, it does mean something like secret, but in the New testament when the Apostles call the gospel a mystery. They're actually stressing the fact that the gospel was God's plan from ages past, which is now being revealed. So the idea of calling it a mystery is not to say that it remains hidden. It's to say that it's been revealed. And so we proclaim it from the rooftops. This is God's mystery. This is God's secret from eternity past that is now being revealed to everyone. And so proclaim it. Tell everyone about it. But if that's the case, and it is, Then it's also true um, that the use of the word mystery by the New Testament writers does indicate that the message of the gospel is meant to be, if you want, special. It's something to marvel at. Okay, it should be made accessible to everybody, and everyone ought to think about it and understand it. Um, But it's called a mystery because it is... God's plan finally being and finally being revealed, sorry. And you ought to be in awe of that. It ought to capture your attention. There's something wondrous about it. There's something wondrous about this message. You should marvel at the mystery, at the message of the gospel. At what happens in the story of the gospel. Um, this morning, as we continue our series, we turn to a psalm, draw your attention to a psalm that ultimately tells us to marvel at the work of God, right? That's ultimately what the psalmist says in Psalm 8. He's calling us to be in awe of what God does. So it fits in so well with the very message of the gospel, right? That we are meant to marvel at what God does. We're meant to marvel at God's works. This is a psalm where the psalmist is saying just that he's in awe of God's work and because he's in awe of God's work he 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 declares that God is majestic right in the opening verses of that psalm oh lord our god how majestic is your name in all the earth right we're meant to be in awe of God's actions in the world and i'm i'm going to say that in the grand scheme of things i think the bible is teaching us that god's the ultimate expression of god's work um is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, the, the, the ultimate act of God that deserves our, our pondering, that deserves our awe, that we should be marveling at, is what we often celebrate at Christmas, Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners. So the psalmist tells us that, O oh Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? He, he's speaking from a place of devotion, And worship, Um, God's truth is not something to be pursued with kind of um, an academic academic distance. It's not to be pursued with cold-heartedness. It's meant to thrill us. It's meant to consume us. Oh Lord, our Lord. And it's something intimate. It's something personal. God, my God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is my God. It's a God who I can know. I can, I can know him. I can, have a fellow, I can have a relationship with him. I can understand his ways. So he calls him his God. Oh, God, my God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. The most excellent thing is to know God's name. In the Old Testament, when, when we refer, well, in the scriptures, when we speak about God's name, we're talking about the sum of his attributes, of his character, who he is, all that he does. How majestic, oh God, how great, how excellent a thing it is to know you and to know your ways in the universe. Now, the the psalmist goes on to say that he knows this just by looking at creation. So how majestic is your name? How worthy of exploring? How worthy of worship is your name and, 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 and your person and who you are? And I know this just by looking at Creation. He's going to say that over and over again. He, he says in verse one, "You have set your glory above the heavens." Later on, he's going to speak about uh, verse three, looking at God at, at, at the universe again and the work of God's fingers. And he's saying, "When I look at creation, I can see just how great God is. I can see I can see your work. I can see how wonderful you are." And so there is a thing that there is a there is a, a a place for saying that all of creation tells us about God's greatness. But you also have to pay, recognize that. He's grounding these words, what he says about God's acts in creation are based on his understanding of scriptures. So um, when he says later on, speaking about human, human beings, he says in verse 6, God has given him dominion over the works of your hands. And if you read that section, the first thing that ought to come to mind is the book of Genesis, right? And what the Bible tells us about the purpose for which God made man, right? Right? God gave him dominion. So that you have these two things happening in the mind of the psalmist. He is looking at creation, and he's seen how great God is, but he's looking at the scriptures to help him understand what God is doing in creation. Right. So this doesn't open the door to some kind of pluralism or some kind of spiritual spirituality that says everybody can understand God just by looking at creation and have an intimate relationship with God. It's not true. We can see something about God's greatness. But to understand what God is doing, to understand his ways, and then to embrace them, we need the scriptures. We need the revelation of God's truth. When he combines the instruction of the scriptures, he sees, you know, the Psalm is framed like this, how majestic is your name. When all is said and done, the psalmist wants you to take the scriptural instruction of what God is doing in creation, Meditate on it so that it moves you to worship and say, How majestic is your name. There's nothing greater than knowing you, God, and what you are doing. That's what he that's how he wants you to, to finish. Right? That's how he wants you to end. Every time you think about the ways of God. Well, that means then that we're in the right place to take the whole story of scripture. I think Junior even said this when he was reading from the book of Hebrews. He says, Um, he says, um, he said when he was reading from the book of Hebrews, he got to a, a section in, in Hebrews and he said, oh, this is from the psalm that we read earlier. He said that, right? I just made that up. He said it. I can't see you guys. I have bad eyes. You're in the dark, it's terrible context. But yeah, he did say that. He said, that's, that's, from, the, that's from the psalm we just read. And so you, you, we're in a good place to take the entirety of scriptures and to say, how do the scriptures ask us to understand the ways of God, right, in, in its entirety? Because what you have in the book of Hebrews is this interesting application, right, of this psalm, which maybe if you read it out, you know, just by itself, you might not see immediately the connection to Jesus Christ and to how, how, how what God is doing in creation is pointing to Jesus particularly. But the writer to the Hebrews surely thinks it is. He says, no, look at, close, look at it closely. That, that psalm, Psalm 8, has Jesus all over it. It's talking about Jesus. And that's why it's it's a psalm of the incarnation. Right? So let me let me let me um almost take you to that point. Let's let's because Christ is the He's the one to marvel at. That's how you marvel at what God is doing, by marveling at what who Christ is. That's why the Bible says Jesus Christ is the one who He's the God revealer. Because we He's the one that helps us to see what God is doing. Now, in particular, the psalmist says in this passage, he says of all the things you have created. And I'm in awe of them. I marvel at your creative power. I marvel more at, the, at man more than anything, at, at humanity, at people. I marvel at the way you created him. I marvel at the purpose for which you created him. I marvel at the power you gave him. I marvel at, I'm in awe of that. I see that you have done something wondrous, something to marvel at in making human beings. That's what he says. In, in one sense, he says at one point, even it's, it's even more, the human beings and their purpose in this world is even something more greater to marvel at or greater to marvel at than, than the angels themselves. Right? You, you have made them, he says, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Why would that be the case? He's almost thinking. Why would God make human beings? He can't see... In and of itself, you, you can't see why human beings should occupy any, a position anywhere so close to angelic beings, to angels. He's saying, and I marvel at this. And of course, the reason for that is because the scriptures want us to, re- the Psalms, the scriptures are calling us again to, 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 to think of God. We're made to worship him. We're made to know him. And so the, 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 the psalmist doesn't write a psalm just marveling at the moon because the moon wasn't made to know God. Doesn't write a psalm, just marveling at the sun, because the sun cannot have intimate fellowship with God, can't worship um, the way human beings worship. We were made to, it, psalms are for us, for men and women to be moved to seek God, to find Him, to talk to Him, to have a relationship with Him. These are the three things he says. Three things he says about God's ways with man that cause him to marvel. God's ways with humanity that cause him to marvel. First thing, that God gives grace to the humble or exalts the lowly. That God prefers to use the lowliness of men to demonstrate the greatness of his power. The other thing that causes him to marvel and burst out in worship is that God cares for men. He really cares for people, for humanity. How God is so concerned. God is bothered by men and women. Bothered by people. The third thing is the dominion that God gives him. God gave man dominion. All those three things are, when we get to the end of the New Testament, these things are fulfilled in Christ. They point us. This is such an apt psalm, an appropriate psalm for this season, for uh, Christmas, for the incarnation, when we think of Jesus Christ coming into the world. Let me say, um, uh, direct you back to those things. Um, this... Morning. I'm going to preach very quickly because I want to leave here so I can get ready to hear David this evening. Sorry, I told him I was going to say one more time on Sunday. So, so, no pressure. I'm, I'm joking, David. I am looking forward to hearing you, but, and you make sure you come out to hear David by God's grace. He's going to be preaching a beautiful sermon. Um, but the first point God gives grace to the humble, He exalts the lowly. You see that there? Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. He wants to praise God. You're so majestic. One of the things I see about you, God, that's so amazing to me, is that you have this pattern, this method of showing your power by using weakness. It's amazing to me. Out of the mouth of babes and infants. I know very often when we read this passage, we're also thinking of and it is a a, a tricky, at least commentators say it's a tricky verse to translate in the Hebrew. Sometimes we think of it as the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, God wants children to praise him. I grew up hearing that. When, the, when, the, when I was in Sunday school and the kids wouldn't sing, my Sunday school teacher would say, out of the mouth of babes and infants. Sing, say, say amen, say hallelujah. Um, and it was, she was right, he was right, that was, that was appropriate. Um, the psalmist is not saying any less than that, but he's saying a bit more. He, he's saying, I've seen how God hears the cries of infants and uses that to overcome his enemy, his foe. It's as if God is making mockery of those who would dare to oppose him. Say, I, I'm not going to fight. I, I, I couldn't fight you. You can't stand toe to toe with me. I'm not going to use all my arsenal, all my strength. I'm just going to use babies to overcome. you. This is God's way. I've learned this about God's way. God's way is to use that which is lowly, and that which is weak, to overcome man and to overcome man's fiercest hostility. Right, um, it, it, it's it, but this is this is God's method. We're to marvel at it. We're to be aware of it. We're to embrace it. We're to live by this. Live by it. This is how God works. You know, this is how God works. You, you want to know where God often is? He's in the place where the humble are. That's where God is working. That's how God is moving. God is usually using the humble path. He's walking the humble route. And if you're in a place, if you're in a situation in your life where you're siding with the prideful, you are um, you're gathered with the ones who are boasting, or you're boasting yourself. Remember, that's often not where not where God is. The thing about that as well is, it doesn't often look like the humble will win. Right initially, just surface level on the face of it, it always looks like the the, the humble are going to lose. And so it's easy human beings because. Uh, we're so narrow-minded and and so short-sighted, it's easy to want to side with the prideful and the ones who boast and the ones who have the loudest voice and who make the, the most noise. It's easy to want to join to them. But God is on the side of the humble and in due time, he just gives them victory. There's no way that this is demonstrated as powerfully in the incarnation. This is why this is such an incarnation psalm in my mind. In the Coming into the world by the King of Glory, who traded, as it were, his heavenly garb for human weakness, we see the demonstration of this truth. God is going to perfect his praise, he's going to establish his strength out of the mouth of babes in the sense of, in the place of weakness. And the, the wise men. Were granted to see this, so they came and they put down their reputation. They cast whatever position they had in society and bowed before the baby. They worshipped at the feet of the baby. They could see now God is going to, God is going to um, overcome through weakness. Right. Um, Mary's Magnificat. This is how Mary re- responds. What we often refer to as Mary's Magnificat. A song. What, what's in Mary's song of praise? Praising a God who ordains praise from through babes, out of the mouth of babes. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble state of his servant." He has set, shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. But the rich he has sent away empty. That's how God works. It's how God works. And that's how he works in the incarnation. And that's how God works in drawing men to himself. He tells them to humble themselves. Be humble. That's, that's why that that, that Christian that that, Christ, that that hymn that we sing at Christmas is is is, is apt here again. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. So when we proclaim Jesus, we tell folks like Paul once said, the the gospel is an offense because it doesn't meet your high standards. You you can't believe that God is. Saying, I will fill the heart of the person who believes the simple message of Christ dying on the cross. But be, clear, be, be, be careful, you find God where the humble are. It's in a lowly story like the gospel that you can expect God to show his power. Where people come and say, I don't have to, I don't have to like, get a degree in something to know God. I don't have to be an academic, have a, a, a big name, a theologian to know God. I don't have to be quite wealthy and earn enough money to buy God's attention. I don't have to be a perfect person, a goody two-shoes. Some people can't even come to Jesus Christ because they feel like they have to be good enough to come. And, And some people, especially in our society today, people are going to hate the gospel because the gospel tells them that you don't have to be a very good person to come to Jesus, for you to be God's friend. You don't have to meet very high standards at all. In fact, it's even better when you've fallen short of the high standards. A culture that is crazy about making people pay for the things they've done wrong, how could they understand, how are they going to respond to a gospel that says actually God can forgive everything you've done wrong? That's the gospel. That's the message God makes his abode with the lowly. And you know what the incarnation reminds us as Christians, if we believe that, that we must pursue that route as well. We must be humble people. We must pursue humility. We must not be hungry for the, the, the pride of life, the boasting of this life. We are reminded those who know this God must make... Um, they, they, they must make their abode with the lowly. Jesus Christ has a parable where he says, or it's not a parable, it's like a, a lesson. He says, when you when you have your parties, don't invite those who can, you know, contribute something to you. Don't in, don't don't be focused on inviting your rich friends. Don't, don't don't let that be your preferred place. He says, invite those who can't offer you anything. The lowly, the poor. Invite them. Christians will be quick. we quick. We're quick to say. I need, to go, I need to put myself in position, man. I'm going to that event, that networking because I know the people that are there. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That could be a good strategy. But we're quick to do that. Sometimes even Christians are the ones putting themselves in debt because they're buying clothes they can't afford because they want to look a certain way and go to certain places. But those same Christians, you never see them with the lowly. You never see us with those who are downtrodden, with those who are weak, with those who are failed. We're not able to, asso- that's not like our God. Those are not people who live in light of the incarnation. Who, who learn to love the unlovable. Who feel like God cared for them so they can care for others. My, I was talking to a friend the other day and he was saying to me, he says, you know, there's some sins in society that if you commit them, you can't even hang around with folks. People can't even hang around, with, I can't even hang around with you because you've made that mistake. Because you've done that thing. And he, and he was saying to me, he said, but you know, it's the fact is God welcomes them in. That's an amazing tension that Christians have to face. God brings these folks in. The most despicable, God welcomes them in. God tells me to pronounce to them a message of grace. It's how God works. Everyone thinks they like how God works until they see how God works. You, you like the idea that God establishes his praise from infants and babes. You like the idea that God exalts the lowly until you know what it means to be lowly. That God is talking about, I'm talking about the lowest of lows. Just just, 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 just take take some time. Before you say yes to what God is saying, make sure you're saying yes to what God is saying. The lowly, he exalts the lowly. And, and are you the lowly this morning? Some of you are not the lowly this morning because you're so impressed by the fact that you're the lowly. Like you're actually boasting, you're prideful about the fact that you think you're humble. That's not the lowly, i.e. the lowly. Do you see that you have nothing to boast in? Nothing before God apart from to depend on his grace. God, but God's way, he marvels at that. He marvels secondly at God's care for humanity. He says... When I look, verse 3, at the heavens, the work of your finger, the moon and the stars, these cosmic realities, these great things, these amazing, intricate, complex things that you've made that folks could spend an eternity almost pondering on and working through uh, uh, the, the meaning and, and the beauty and of all, all these things. I'm in awe of this fact, verse 4, that you are mindful of. My, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is humani- What are people that you are concerned about them? What are people that you are bothered by what they do? What are people, particularly in the psalm he's saying, that you give them so much authority? You've given them dominion. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you visit him, that you care for him, that you, you sometimes look to be pleading with him longing for him wanting a relationship with him it's all, sometimes it almost looks like you're desperate for him christians say god i'm desperate for you absolutely we say that and sometimes god acts as if he's desperate for us so why you don't need anything not only do you not need anything the things you've made clearly show you don't the things you made are far greater in them the things you've created you could be satisfied, surely, in your creative work. You've displayed enough that you are God. What makes me marvel is the, the place that you've placed human beings. The, the place you have um, elevated them to. Now, this is the thing. God has elevated us to that place. So we don't need to be worried that, we are meant, that human beings are meant to be the center. That's not the point. God has placed them there. If God has placed them there, he's the one who's the center. But he has has elevated man. Nothing shows how much God has elevated man than the fact that he visits him. The word is often used in the Old Testament for those times when God would hear the cries of his people and respond in deliverance. You know, they would would cry out from bondage and God would visit them. God cares. God is compassionate. You cared for him. I don't understand why you're bothered by him. Why do you come down to look at him? Why do you, why do you care about how he treats people? Why do you care about his destiny? Why do you care about his well-being? Why why do you make their business your own? I'm amazed that you care for him. the point the psalmist is making. Of course, is he's not in and of himself. He's not worth it. You don't need him. You see, that that's often that's countercultural, I guess today. That's that's contrary to a gener- to, to a world that wants to convince you that you are worthy of worship, that you are worth it. You're worthy. Of, you can't be corrected. Your desires can't be challenged. because because you're worth it. How you feel is fact. You know the the, the 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 psalmist says, the fact that God is mindful of us doesn't make sense because we're not worthy of that. We're not worthy of worship. Our worth comes from the fact that God cares for us. He visits us. He has chosen to love us. But he does. And the psalmist would be amazed if he knew just how much God visited man. He says, you visit him. You care for him. That's, that's probably a better translation is you, you visit him. He would be amazed if he knew what it, how, just how far God was willing to travel. When he's writing at this point, he's probably thinking of the occasions where he's seen God hear the cries of a, of a poor person and feed them. Or he's seen Israel cry out in times of battle and God has given them the victory. He could not have imagined that God cared for man so much that he would take on the very form of man. That we would see God walking in our world. That he would dress himself in our flesh. That folks would be able to point to a man and say, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That he, someone would touch God, touch him, feel his, his hands, his palms, see injuries and say, my Lord and my God. He couldn't have fathomed that. But God did, God visited the incarnation is about just how much God cares for people, for humanity. God cares, God cares. And we must we must represent that. God cares for the eternal destiny of men and women. He cares for where they will spend eternity. People can say all they want, and they of course there's folks that will mock the gospel today. But we we must say the mockery aside, the foolishness aside, God took on human form. My friend, this is a reminder to you that God cares. God visits, He's merciful, He's gracious. God wants you to turn and live. God has no delight in you dying in your sin. God cares for you. Even when people, even when people don't care for you. You know what I love the most about God care? God's care. God cares for those who don't deserve to be cared for. God cares for us when we've put ourselves, we put ourselves in trouble. It's one thing for you to care for me because you feel like the elements are against me. Something is happening. Things are being done to me you say, I care for that person. They don't deserve to be in that position. They, someone has put them there. They did, they did nothing to put themselves in that position. But God cares for those who have done everything. They've they, they put themselves there. They've done it. They've made the mistake. They actually deserve to be wallowing in regret. They deserve to be weeping for their mistakes and their failings. They made I did it. I'm the man. I've done wrong. God cares for those who find themselves in this quandary in this quagmire because they wouldn't listen because they did not heed warning over and over and over again. God cares for those who can't say that was a mistake that was an accident you ever done something where you can't say it was an accident maybe you maybe it was too prideful to say that but if you thought about it deep down it wasn't an accident I knew full well what I was doing I had every perspective I just wanted to do what was wrong. And now this is where I find, but God cares for me there, then. This is a God who visits. This is a God who cares. And we say that at Christmas, God cares for men and women. And so we proclaim the gospel and we share the truth with them. But not just that, we care for people too, Uh, brothers and sisters. I'm speaking for myself. I don't stay with you. I don't know what you're doing. You guys are better better folk than me. But, But as I was thinking about this passage, I knew it. I don't have the care that God has for people. I'm not compassionate for people the way God really cares. God really sees folks messing up and wants to be alongside them and wants to. He he cares for the lonely and he cares for the poor and he cares for the broken and he takes risks to love. I don't don't do that. My life's not surrounded by that. And I say, where's the care that's meant to be flowing from my regenerated soul? Where is it? God cares. You know, how often I walk past or drive past homeless people, and I just think to myself, "That's like—it is, is what it is. Like, you're here. I've got somewhere to be. Uh, yeah, it's, it's probably bad out there. I don't care enough. We don't care enough. We—we we can't really identify the the folks that we're helping. Let's not tell. Let's not tell. There's no lies about it. We have as, we have so much." We have so many clothes in our closets. We have so much food in our kitchen, so much equipment, so much stuff, because we do not care the way God cares. We just don't. God cares, and and, and that's why our gospel is so, so fragile. I used to, when I first became a Christian, I used to hear these. I, I, you might be, oh, you might be aware of this debate or not. But these debates about, what, about the gospel, whether Christians should engage in feeding the poor, and folks will say, no, we don't want to do the social gospel. So we don't want to feed the poor. We don't want to open schools because that's social gospel. Of course we shouldn't change the gospel. Folks are not saved by being fed or feeding people. But do you know how many churches have got all that right? They're, they're under no threat of getting the gospel wrong, in one sense. They're really solid. They've who've been preaching the gospel for years, and under that disguise of being committed to evangelism, don't care for people. What does you wanting to preach the gospel have to do with you not feeding people who are poor? Or helping those who are broken? And Christians would say, oh, you know what, we would help the poor there, but they, I don't think they would let us preach the gospel. So we don't care because folks don't want to hear the gospel? That's not gospel-centered. It's not. It's just an excuse for our, our listlessness, for our, our love of ease and comfort. And so the incarnation of Christ acts as a rebuke to us because we're not being what we ought to be. And I'm afraid to preach this this morning because I I, I know that seeing my my Savior take on human form, my God coming to my world, calls me to be a man that I'm just not. And so we have to respond in repentance and, and seek his grace. God cares. How can I say that? And sing about it if I can't also, if I'm not also going to learn to care for others. So yes, Christmas calls us to not be selfish. But not just for a, a month or a week. In our very beings, God gives humanity dominion. That's the third thing he says. In fact, the very thing that makes him so so, so uh, um, astounded about God's care, is this very fact. God has given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Who made the sheep? Who made the oxen? Who made the beasts of the field? Who made the birds of the earth? This is God's work. It's what God made. But he says, you have put them under his feet. Man is allowed to have dominion over them. That's what God has done for humanity. He has given human beings dominion. I was with a few brothers a week or two ago, and we were talking about some of the advances in, in medical sciences and stuff. And, and folks were saying, we, we were discussing a particular, um, a particular aspect of that. And someone said, or we were saying in general, or some, yeah, I, I'm not too um, keen about that very advance because it just seems like we're playing God. And I said to the, the brothers, I said, that doesn't seal the deal, you know. The very fact that Human beings may make certain advancements in technology or science that makes it almost seem like they're playing God. does not make it wrong. Actually, sometimes, not all the time, it may be the very evidence that they are being what they should be, made in the image of God. You don't agree with me? He says, you have put the sheep and the oxen and the beasts of the field. If you took that phrase, if you took that section of that verse away, and they didn't put any context around it. I would swear you were talking about God. He's talking about man. He's talking about human beings. God placed human beings in such a position where they were meant to, the word is often vice-regent, they were meant to be God's representatives. So much so that Jesus Christ once says, you know God, says to some, God once said to certain men, you are God's. Right? I've scratched my head for years trying to understand the verse. That verse is saying what it means. Jesus Christ is saying, you know, because God gave certain people power, he almost could call them little gods. Gods. Because they were meant to. They're meant to be God's representative. And so it could almost look like they were little gods. I'm, I'm not saying that we are actually divine beings. I'm saying we're giving Human beings are given the authority that actually should belong to beings who are sharing in the divine. What the Bible tells us is that we fell short of that glory. So the dominion that we were meant to use to glorify God, we use to try and usurp his position. We use it to abuse others. We ignore his boundaries. We bring damnation upon ourselves. Nowhere does the Bible show us that we are no longer in charge like we ought to be than when it comes to death. Everywhere the Bible is telling us. You know what the psalmist says, I said you are gods, but you die like men. You're meant to be. I didn't make you to die, but death shows you that you fell from your place of dominion because you tried to go against the one who has all dominion. You tried to go against the one who gave you the dominion in the first place. But the grand story of the New Testament, of the Bible, is tell the psalmist and everyone who sings this psalm To never stop marveling at the dominion that God gave men. Why? Because ultimately, God is going to perfect that dominion in Jesus Christ. So the writer to the Hebrews tells us in uh, Hebrews 2, which our brother, as I said, our brother um, Junior read earlier. He says that this verse, this psalm is speaking about Jesus. Right? Verse um, 8. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The point the writer of the Hebrews is making is man has fallen, of any, has fallen short of the dominion that God gave him. Which was never an absolute dominion. He didn't have dominion over every single thing. He had dominion over God's works. But to redeem And to restore man to that position in one sense, God did something spellbinding. He took on human form. And now because Jesus Christ is both God and man, number one, he can be in dominion over everything. Even the angels worship him. So Christ's dominion is a dominion that human beings never experienced. But number two, because he's a man, He shares that dominion with those who trust in him. Christmas is a story of how God has promised us that we will one day reign with the king of glory. One day. We we did a series on heaven recently. Christmas is a story about how one day God is going to perfect his creation. He's going to renew it. There will be a restoration of all that which was lost because of the curse. Because Jesus Christ will be in total, total dominion. And so, bow before the king. You can't just see him and smile at him and say nice little things about him. You bow before him. You surrender to him. He has all dominion. Bow before him that you might share with him in his, in his reign. And so it gives us hope. Everything will one day will be restored. One day everything will be fine. Everything will be beautiful again. And so, as the writer to the Hebrews says, we can't see it yet. That's where the prosperity gospel guys don't get it right, right? Because they're trying to tell us that we should see it now. He says, we don't see it yet. You don't see it yet. Can't see everything under his subjection yet. So we're not going to see that yet. But we do see that Jesus Christ came into the world, took on human form, made sinners right with God, gives them his Holy Spirit. That's the dominion that God is restoring. Trust Jesus. You will reign with him one day. And everything else can go, things will go wrong in life because we don't see that dominion yet. But one day we will reign with him. Let me close by saying this. What you should be saying in response to this, or what, what I want you to be saying in response to this sermon today is, is how can I marvel? How can I have, I, I want to be in deep awe. There was a song a song long time ago, and the, the first line, that I used to sing a long time ago, the first line just said, one of the lions just said, it's a refrain, don't make me lose, don't let me lose my wonder. This was a Christian saying, I always want to be in awe of what you've done. My brothers and sisters, we, we ought to be in awe. This is the most marvelous thing. God's name is the most marvelous thing in all the earth. We have to remain in awe of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. There's only, in one sense, for those who have the Holy Spirit, there's only one way to do that. You, you meditate on the truth. You meditate on the truth. That's why we can never afford to go to churches that, dumbed down doctrine or I'm all for relevant um teaching and stuff but I I I couldn't go to a church where everything was just about my felt need the best way to to make sure you don't you're not affected by the likes on insta everything's about my felt need um the the the, the best way just about me no I, I need everything to be grounded in the truth of God's word that's the only thing that doesn't change we, we come and we marvel at the wonder of the incarnation. And you don't have to lie to God. You don't have to pretend. None of us feel these things as we ought to. Love these truths as we ought to. And so we press on. Lord, show me how I should live in light of the fact that you came. Show me that you came. Show me that you've taken on my form. Show me that, oh Lord Jesus, all things are subject to you. And I've entered into dominion with you. Show me that. You must marvel. And the other thing I say in closing is, you can't marvel unless you believe this gospel. You can't marvel. And I don't have, you know, I don't have much to add to say to this. I don't have much to do to impress you. There's only one way to live and not die is to believe in Jesus Christ. It's not very hard. It's not very complex. It's just true. It's just pure. It's just powerful. It just saves you know, like I know, that you're a sinner. You know that nothing that you and I can do can make us right with God. You, you, can, you can dress as nice as you want. You can put on a face. It doesn't matter. We, we've all sinned. and for, Okay, your sin is, mine is worse than yours. But we've all sinned. and We all feel the pangs of conscience. We all feel that we are facing God's judgment. And God says, the biggest thing you have to do in your life, the most important thing, Is to make right with me. To know that you're my child. To realize God made me for himself. And I haven't been serving. I've been running to the devil. I need to run back to God. and The only way to do that is to do nothing but trust in Jesus. Believe in him. To say, Jesus, wash me from my sin. Save me and and walk with me. Walk with me every step of the way. God visits you. God comes to you. You can speak to him. You can cry out to him. You can pray to him. Make me a new person. Make me someone that knows you, that sees you, Jesus. If you died on the cross, I hear the gospel today. Help me to understand it. Help me to see. Because I can't afford to play with eternal life. And when you do that, when you do that, you, the Holy Spirit will open your heart. It will open your mind. You you begin to marvel at the truth and say with the psalmist, Oh, Lord, our God. Oh, God, my God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.